At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. A tremendous source of pride is revealed by the fact that students and alumni of historically black colleges and universities often rank the school's marching band as a top reason why they chose to attend that college, even though they aren't members of the band. The largest HBCU's marching band and dance team exhibition in the world returns to Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta this weekend. And later this hour, we'll learn about the precision drum lines, marching band techniques, and high-energy routines that are an important part of HBCU culture. First, an Atlanta-area event highlighting the Lunar New Year celebration, which culminates soon. The Vietnamese zodiac observes the lunar year of the cat. This is the lunar year of the rabbit in other Eastern cultures, notably China and Korea. According to the 2020 census, 71,000 Korean Americans are estimated to live in Georgia, and that number has continued to increase in the past few years. Korean immigrant and founder of the Atlanta Music Academy, Mrs. Young Hae Kim, created a new nonprofit to uplift her community. K-Wave Outreach preserves and promotes traditional Korean culture through music and art. Their inaugural event is February 4th at Aurora Theater in Lawrenceville. Mrs. Kim joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. It's my pleasure to be here, Lois. Would you share with us how you and your family emigrated to the U.S. from South Korea? Surely. Uh, my family of seven, there are five girls, and mom and dad came to the United States in 1973 from Seoul to Atlanta directly. And I have lived in this Atlanta area since then. I have attended Peabody Conservative Music in Baltimore for four years. 
but that was only four years of my time that was away from Atlanta. But I have lived in here for since then, 1973. So you are clearly a proud Atlantan. <laughs> and your love for music and playing the piano began at a very early age. I read that you were selected as the youngest pianist to perform with the Atlanta Symphony Youth Orchestra. What impact did that experience have on your career path? Uh, I think tremendously. Um, before I moved on, uh, I, when I came in 1973, we had no money. <laughs> I mean, we didn't speak English very well, but I met a gentleman uh, whose name was Mr. Jerry Wheeler, who had paid my family the, my private piano lessons for three years. Mm. Uh, yes, and he was the one heard the WAB back then, because we didn't know what WAB was, you know, in 1974. But he heard there was an audition for the Atlanta Youth Symphony Orchestra. And he suggested I audition for it, which I did. And I got in, and I was performing under the conductor Michael Palmer at the time. Yes. So, yeah, only back then I knew that the music can touch someone's heart. And then I was able to benefit from it. So, my mission now is pass on what I have received to the others. That's my mission. What a wonderful story. And I love hearing that WABE played a role in that. Yes. Oh, the power of radio and music on the radio. Yes. So tell us, what inspired you to create the Atlanta Music Academy in 1982? After I graduated from Peabody Conservatory, I came back to town and uh, I realized that there are a lot of talents in especially my community, Korean community, but did not have a source to find a good teacher at the time. So I think I was the pioneer in that field to connect the good teacher to the good students. That's what prompted me to start Atlanta Music Academy. And why do you believe it's important for children to learn music at an early age? I think it has um, immeasurable benefits and advantages to start music. First, it teaches them discipline, and also it teaches them the value of hard work. If you want to do well, I mean, just to practice just two notes or one phrase, you have to go over many, many, many times. So if you take that kind of working ethic to any field that you are in, you'll be successful. So I think it's so valuable to the young children to study music. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, please tell us why you wanted to formed the nonprofit K-Wave Outreach. I have um, retired from Atlanta Music Academy officially, but I'm still the, the big force behind. But uh, upon my retirement, I realized that 
I like to do something for the community and for the children. I, there are so many talented students at the school, but I like to return the talents to the community. I see a lot of violence going on, race against race. Mm. I think that all comes from not knowing each other. Um, if you know each other, you will see there are a lot of similarities in their society. I mean, there's more similarity than differences. So if you realize there's a lot of similarities in our own cultures, then there'll be less misunderstanding. Then if you realize there's less misunderstanding, then we'll understand each other and love each other. We can embrace all kinds of races together and we all realize we are all connected. Okay? That's my mission of um, creating nonprofit K-Wave outreach. That is most admirable. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Lois. The inaugural event of K-Wave will be February 4th at the Aurora Theater. What can visitors expect? There are a lot of things going on that events. It actually is one day long. We start from 1.30 to 8.30. We have a courtyard. There's uh, You can come and taste our cuisine, our cosmetics, our medicines, and you can see our games you probably have seen in the squeeze <laughs> uh, game. <laughs> I, I would prefer uh, the I'm Korean sure. food <laughs> and, and the cosmetics and the artwork. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and then when you're coming in, in the lobby, you see our traditional paintings and the potteries where you can actually write your whatever scripts on the vase. And then there will be a, a photo zone where you can take the pictures with the Korean customs. And you can see the Korean fan that you can write your names on. There are a lot of things you can see. And then, of course, in the theater at 3 o'clock and at 6, uh, 6 o'clock, we'll have our uh, concerts in the Aurora Theater. And what kind of music will be performed? Uh, we're going to start with a very, very uh, big Korean traditional um, drum. Mm. So whenever our, our tradition is that whenever we have important events starting, that's what we do. We play the big, very big uh, the drums to let them know that this is a starting followed by the Korean traditional songs played with the Korean traditional instrument, followed by the, uh, the Korean folk songs sung by tenor and soprano. And then we have K-Wave Children's Choir, which meets on every Saturday for two hours. So they'll be singing in. And then we have K-Wave String Ensemble, which will perform a BTS, a song, and followed by the Korean, uh, the K-Wave Symphony Orchestra, which will play Arya. I think a play by the New York Phil when they are visiting North Korea. So we're going to play that. And the final song will be the Goyang e Bom. It's a very well-known, it's a spring of home. We're going to sing with everybody. 
with the Korean flag on the uh, stage. Oh, that is such a wide array of <laughs> events and experiences. I can see how observing and learning about these different aspects of Korean culture for those experiencing it for the first time will find it fascinating. How do you hope K-Wave will bridge the gap between older and younger generations of Koreans when it comes to learning more about Korean culture? That's why I'm, I'm trying to educate my second, Korean second generations to know. They have to know what their heritage is first. Then once they know it, then they can promote and preserve. Um, I came with a lot of um, difficulties finding a music to be played by symphony orchestra. So my mission for the K-Wave is to find our folk songs and then uh, probably make a trans transcriptions so that a lot of our second generation who plays Western music can play those music in a full orchestra version. That's my next mission. Wonderful. So that it can be preserved and promoted in a year by year, not just this year, but long time, <laughs> generation to generation. So these are traditional aspects of Korean right. culture. Moving to pop culture, there's been a global impact with K-pop. What's your take on K-pop? Music has to be changed as time goes on. We cannot just uh, you know, enjoy pop, Beethoven, Brahms. <laughs> the music has to be changed. So I am all for it. That's why we are playing BTS music in our program as well. I think we have to incorporate it. So I have created K-Wave little string ensembles. They will go out. We are not going to play in a very fancy indoor type. We'll be going out to streets, even to play for homeless people to this BTS music or K-Pops. I think any music, any type of music can touch the human soul. Mrs. Young Hae Kim, founder of K-Wave Outreach, their inaugural event is February 4th at Aurora Theater. And more information is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, Art Smith tells us about his informative and in-depth website, Gabe Archives. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. 
Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. Thank you for listening. In Atlanta, we take pride in the number of gay bars around the city. More than 300 LGBTQ plus bars have played a memorable role in Atlanta's gay community, past and present. During the pandemic, Art Smith, who describes himself as, quote, a longtime card-holding member of the Atlanta gay community, decided to create an archive of all the gay bars throughout the U.S. and the world. The site is called Gay Barchives. Art Smith joins me now via Zoom to talk about this monumental project. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. It's an honor to be here. Now, you have lived in Atlanta since the 1980s. Please tell us your thoughts about how the LGBTQ plus scene grew and evolved over the last 40 years. Well, I first moved to Atlanta in 1983, and I lived there for about 20 years. I moved away for a while came back and then moved away again in 2015. So I do not currently live in Atlanta, but I still have many longtime friends and contacts there. And I was actually just there for Atlanta Pride. It was a grand event. It was, it certainly was. And I met and connected with a lot of people in Atlanta who are big, big fans of the gay bars from the past in Atlanta. I spoke with people with the Atlanta History Project and a number of other organizations that are trying to preserve uh, Atlanta's gay history. And from my own personal perspective, I was living in, in Nashville, Tennessee in uh, 1982. And I made a trip to Atlanta for New Year's Eve, 82, 83, because Atlanta had an image at that time of being the San Francisco or New York City of the South. It was a gay Mecca at that time and everybody in the South knew it. So I went there for New Year's Eve with my boyfriend. We had a fabulous time. And before we left Atlanta, we were so excited about the vibrancy of Atlanta's gay community at that time that we made the decision to move there. In one day, we found an apartment, turned on our utilities. I accepted a job offer. Oh, and the wow. following weekend, we moved to Atlanta because of its gay scene. Oh, wow. Now, this is such an enormous project. How did you compile the list of gay bars throughout the world onto this website? It is a very arduous task. You know, as you are well aware, 40 years ago, there was no such thing as the internet. So the records of those bars that existed prior to say 2000, 
exist primarily in either other databases that academic institutions have assembled or in any copies of gay magazines that may have been preserved over the decades. So it takes a lot of sleuthing, a lot of research, a lot of talking to people who have been around for quite a while and gathering those stories and kind of collecting the information piece by piece. Did you have any help? I did. Most of the research and the, the driving force behind the Gay Archives Project is my own. And most of the money that's been spent on any kind of research or equipment or anything I've needed to do has come out of my pocket. But I do have people who have supported me in the project, both financially and by being kind of my feet on the ground in different places. One example in Atlanta is a gentleman by the name of Floyd Taylor, who has been very supportive and then reached out and connected me with a lot of people he knows in the uh, Atlanta gay history scene and in the bar scene there. Art, in what ways has the bar scene been a cornerstone for the LGBTQ plus community? Well, my first experience in the gay bar scene was in the late 70s. By the time I moved to Atlanta in 1983, AIDS had already hit the scene. But it wasn't as big of an impact in cities like Atlanta, where we were kind of removed from the New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles impact of AIDS. But one thing that it did do is the local bar community was essential in allowing a community to form. Many of the organizations that you now know as advocates of gay rights or supporters of gay services and causes, most of those were formed as a result of interactions with the gay bars. The gay bars were the places where the meetings were held, where people met each other to join hands in a common cause, where drag queens and local performers did fundraisers to raise money for organizations. One interview that I did last year was with the executive director of Florida Equality. And she told me that there would not have been an Equality Florida had there not been a supportive bar community. So that to me was the first you know, big impact that was recognized by the world from the gay community. Yeah, it was a safe space. It absolutely was. And at that time, it was very important. Prior to that, you know, people like to go back and talk about, you know, 1969 and the Stonewall Inn uprising in New York. But there were actually several uprisings around the country that preceded and predated the Stonewall uprising. There was one at the Black Knight in um, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. There was one at the Black Cat in San Francisco. There was one at the Black Cat in um, Los Angeles and numerous other ones around the country that kind of started to set the tone. But Stonewall is the one that really got the focus and started to really uh, get the message out nationally that we needed to fight for our rights. And again, all of those places that I mentioned were gay safe havens, gay bars or gay cafes that allowed us 
to meet and to discuss topics and to plan protests or marches or whatever we were going to do. Mm. From compiling gay bars into this enormous database, can you estimate how many have closed their doors compared to those still open? Well, that's a little bit of an impossible question to answer because so many of them have changed names over the years. And of course, you're going back in Atlanta history, the first, what I would call gay safe space that I was able to identify so far was in the like 1949, 1950. So you're going back, you know, 70 years. And in that time, there are many bars that have opened and closed. So far in gay archives, I have documented over 3,000 bars around the country in the U.S. that have existed over time. But there are many, many more than that. A friend of mine, two friends of mine actually, just published a book about Chicago's gay bar scene. It's called Last Call Chicago, and it was written by Rick Carlin and St. Suki Delacroix. And together, they spent a couple of years diligently researching Chicago's bar scene. And in this book that they've just published, they have identified 1,001 LGBT spaces. So they could be cafes or restaurants that were popular with the gay community or bars, but 1,001 in the city of Chicago alone. My goodness. Art, when did you decide to grow the site from Atlanta gay bars to the entire U.S. and then beyond? It was kind of an organic growth. The very first conversations I had that inspired me to look into memories of Atlanta's gay bar scene was with uh, one of the former owners of Backstreet in Atlanta. Her name is Vicki Vera, and she also is very well known in the Atlanta gay community. She and her family owned Backstreet, Weekends, Weekends Warehouse, Lipsticks, Levitas, and a number of other bars in Atlanta that were very well attended by the gay community and very supportive of, of the gay community. She wanted to do something to commemorate the 45th anniversary of the day they opened in 1975. So I started talking to people about Backstreet specifically. And in the course of that conversation, people started to reminisce about other bars. So they would be telling me about their memories of Backstreet. And then they would say, but do you remember before we went to Backstreet, earlier in the evening, we would go to the Far Library or the Armory or Bulldogs or the Cove or wherever. So it kind of mushroomed through Atlanta. And then it went beyond that because people would say, well, there was also a Backstreet in Fort Lauderdale. And there was also you know, a bar called Bulldog in Chicago or wherever. And it started expanding and expanding. And I just ran with it. I just said, okay, once you know a name or have an idea, you can start to dig the, this information up. The website not only points people to the history about gay bars and nightlife, but also to various articles and websites on LGBTQ plus history listed by state and country. 
Why did you want to include links to the overall history as well? Well, the, the, that part of the project, that's the archives page on my website. And that started as a hidden page on the website. So nobody else could see it except me. But I put it there because in the course of my research, when I found these resources, I was at a notebook full of random notes everywhere. And I said, this every time I go to research a new bar, I have to pull out that notebook and flip through all these pages. Why don't I just put that file on my computer? And so I put it on my website. And after speaking to a number of people and finding out that some of the people I was speaking with who may have been historians or may have been authors or may have been bar owners, they would ask about that information too and say, well, where did you find out about this? And so I just decided to make it a public page I feel like history in general, and our gay history in particular, is something that should be easily accessible to anyone. And Gay Bar Archives is not about making Art Smith the guru of gay bar information. It's about having the information out there and having people be able to share their stories of these different places that they used to frequent. Creator of the Gay Bar Archives, Art Smith from our conversation in November. Coming up, we'll hear about the HBCU All-Star Battle of the Bands coming to Mercedes-Benz Stadium this Saturday. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Historically Black college and university marching bands and dancers are part of a beloved tradition. Marching bands showcase incredible charisma and talent and lately have been finding their way into major media moments like the pop star Beyonce's stupendous homecoming performance at the 2018 Coachella Festival. The HBCU All-Star Battle of the Bands returns this year. It's the world's largest exhibition of HBCU bands and dancers. The event takes place February 4th, at Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta and will feature six competing college marching bands and for the first time, two Atlanta high school bands. Joining me now via Zoom are Lindsay B. Sargent, chairman of the Battle of the Bands and music department chair at Florida A&M University and Donovan Wells, music and band director for Bethune-Cookman University. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Lindsay, you've been involved with this annual show for 18 years. How have you observed its growth and evolution over the years? Wow, that 
I can't believe it's been that long since 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 we first started this battle of bands, but it's been a a pleasure. I feel so honored to have been a part of this very very important cultural event, and I call it a cultural event because you know when you start talking about black college bands, it's a, it's a culture that is so important, and what we brought is that band culture. We eliminated the competitiveness of the bands to more or less feature it as a showcase. And that's what the founders had in mind to bring, I think it was 10 college bands at first. It was 10 HBCU bands at first. And the thing that I noticed from the very beginning, how it grew, it grew out of a non-competitive environment where now students were getting to know other students in other bands. You know, when you take out the, the competitiveness of my band is better than your band, this kind of thing. What you have is a is a camaraderie that is second to none. I've never seen anything like it. And as the years progressed, band directors and students were always looking forward to coming to Atlanta to just meet other people in other bands that they, they might see you know, during the regular year or they may have heard about, but to see them in person, to meet them is always exciting for the students. And that's what it's all about. It's always been about the students. The growth of the whole organization just in terms of its management has been phenomenal. I mean, for them to manage 10 bands or eight bands and now six bands, getting them in and out of the dome, sometimes in, in the snow and sometimes in the cold and, and wet uh, slick highways to get them in and out, you know, they have really nailed that, that whole progression for the last 18 years. And I've, I've always been proud to be a part of it. Now, besides being a, an amazing spectacle, this event ought to be quite attractive to young prospective college students. What can you tell us about the college fair that will be held in the arena? Well, I think the college fair is a very important part of it. I remember when they first started talking about the college fair, I immediately, being on the band staff at Florida and University, you know, we were able to come in contact with students that we probably wouldn't have been able to con come in contact with right there in Atlanta. So it was a plus for us. I'm sure it's a plus for all the ba other bands. When a student can come in, high school students can come to the dorm and actually see their A game of 10 college bands or eight college bands, in this case, six college bands, they have made up their minds what bands they want to be a part of. So that recruiting fair is an extremely important part of, of that event. And we've always encouraged our staff to participate in that recruiting process. Donovan, you lead the participating band from Bethune-Cookman University, the Marching Wildcats. Please do tell us about your band and how it has evolved under your leadership over the years. First of all, um, thank you for having me. I'm a graduate of Bethune-Cookman. I graduated ah. back in 1984. I'm originally from a small town in Virginia, Smithfield, Virginia. If you ever had any bacon or ham in the grocery store, it probably came from Smithfield. That's where, that's, that's where I'm from. And I, I came in 80 and graduated in 84. And I went back to Virginia and taught public school for 12 years. And I came back to Bethune-Cookman as an assistant for one year. And then um, I'm in my 26th year 
as head director. The way I've seen our program evolve over the years is that um, when I came to Bethune, band was important, but not a necessity. Over the years, and my good friend Lindsay Sargent can attest to this, we have a game every year in Orlando where our arch rival is Florida a and University. And if you, if you know about Florida A&M's storied history with Dr. Foster, when I took over, Dr. Foster was still the band director. And my goal was to make sure that we could go to the Florida Classic and look like we belong and compete. And over the years, that's been my goal. And in that process, to recruit good students, uh, students that are not only good players that we know that have the academic foundation when they come in, that they can matriculate through Bethune-Cookman and graduate and become a graduate. We, start, we started out with 88 people when I first got here. Our largest number, I believe, has been like 310. Right now, we're, we hover around 250. Everybody has kind of struggled with COVID. COVID has kind of threw a monkey wrench into everybody's program. When I say everybody, I'm speaking of HBCUs, and some has recovered better than others. All of us are still recovering. But, you know, over the years at Bethune-Cookman, we started out, my goal was just to increase the size of the band and make the band better, to get our symphonic bands up to par on the collegiate level. And as that started happening, things happened for the program that I never anticipated. I could take credit for it. But really, it just happened. It wasn't planned. We got a call from MTV. One of our first big engagements was in 1998-99. MTV called us to, to uh, do their Super Bowl special. Then the next year, we got a call to do Drumline. Then the next year, we got a call to do Ellen DeGeneres. Then the next year, we got a call to do this and to do that. Then we started getting in a, uh, NFL halftime, something that we had never done. And, you know, over the last 20 something, 22, 23 years, we've done 21 NFL halftimes, not including the Super Bowl and the Pro Bowl. So, you know, those things have happened and it just seemed like the good Lord has given us when one door shut, he opened another one for us. And we've just been extremely blessed. I would love to take credit and say I planned it all like this and it happened the exact way I planned it. But I'm a country boy and, and my father used to always say, say, if you work hard and you're sincere about what you're doing, what's due to you will come to you. And, uh, and I, tell, I tell the band the same thing. So, And we've been fortunate to have just great students over the last quarter of a century. Great students, real, really good students, talented, smart. I'm, I'm, really, I'm really excited about the students that we've had. Part of what is so exciting about hearing your bands is also seeing them perform. And I was wondering if each of you could talk about the choreography involved. I mean, when these students audition, do they have to be dancers and and skilled <laughs> with movement as well as musical? I mean, these people are doing some extraordinary moves out there on the field. Yeah, yeah. I can say for Bethune-Cookman and, 
and I'll let uh, Mr. Sargent speak on behalf of Florida A&M, but from a recruitment standpoint, we're looking for talented players. And talented players, teaching the dance routines and everything, you know, that's, you know, that can be done. You know, that's just like when a student comes into your program, you know, every band has a different marching style and, you know, and they adjust, you know, they've been learning all their life. They'll, they'll learn this and adjust to this as well. But, uh, but no, uh, we don't audition. I don't audition. Kids don't have to do a dance routine, anything. We're just looking for solid, good, solid fundamental skills of playing the instrument that they have chosen to play. And I look for students that I can bring to Bethune-Cookman. And they may not be an all-state player or, or a first-chair player, but I'm still looking for students that can come in and make a contribution musically. And sometimes that, mu that musical contribution may be big. Sometimes it may be small, but as long as you're contributing, you're helping the program. You know, uh, the choreography, I wish I could take credit for that too, but that's the, <laughs> that's, that's the creativity of our students. You know, our students, uh, they come up, and first of all, I can't do all the stuff that they do, so there's no way, it's no way, I, <laughs> it's, it's no way I can take credit for it. But these students nowadays, they are so creative, and they have such a, a creative imagination of doing things. My job is to take all of their creative ideas and make sure that we we manage it and edit it and, and rehearse it and get it to a point where we can go out and perform it and, and, and the general audience can enjoy it. I was going to echo the same thing that Donovan Wells just said for our program and for a lot of the other band programs. You know, we are, we are out to recruit the best musicians that we can. And the, and the good part about it is that our farm system is all the high schools, you know, all the high schools from around the state, that's where they learn their craft. And then when they come to college, you know, it's just like, it's just like a professional football team, you know, their, their farm, their farm systems are colleges and universities. But, but, but the most important thing, and, and Donovan can agree with me, is that the dance part of what we do that's a part of the African-American tradition. It's a part of our culture. So you can't, you can't go to an African-American party, for instance, and there's no dancing. So dancing is a part of what we do. I remember the years that Nelson Mandela, the year that Nelson Mandela was released from South Africa prison for 27 years, people danced in the street. People dance in their homes. So dance have always been a very, very important part. And Donovan, you can tell me, if, if our bands don't dance in, in a routine, we're going to hear it from our audience. <laughs> oh, oh, we, well, oh, we, may, we, we may have to look for a job. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they don't dance. We may have to look for a job. <laughs> really? In addition yeah. to the bands, the battle of the bands, this upcoming event, also brings dance teams from the featured schools. How do the dance performances from those teams factor into the competition aspect of the event? Well, with a dance team, you know, that's just another facet of the show. You know, we have a, we have a dance team of young ladies called 14K. And 14K, they have a, we usually give them about a minute segment of our show where we showcase them and 
when we do our concert numbers, we have a flag core that we that we showcase during that time. But I want to bring a point home that Lindsay made earlier. It's not competition. We have a great art form in the show style marching bands. And I'm a fan of every one of them. Every one of them have something unique that only they can bring to the table. Every band out here has something unique. And the HBCU All-Star Band showcase what, what will happen there is that the winner there will be the fans. The fans are the winner because they see six great HBCUs out there doing their thing, doing their pageantry, doing their show style. They have exciting moments in their show. They have a couple of surprises. You never know, may have a celebrity with them. You never know. So the, the winner is always the audience. The audience is always the winner. And, and our kids are winners too, because when they go out there and perform at a high level, sometimes for some of our students, that's their first time achieving something at that high level. That's their first time feeling like they're a winner. That's their first time feeling like they're part of something great. So um, was, it's great for our students too, for their morale, just, just their personal being, you know, it's great for them too. Camaraderie, they see it. They learn things that they can take into the job market. They learn teamwork. They learn how to get stuff done uh, correctly and on time because they have to meet this deadline. They learn a lot in, in band, you know, so uh, I, don't, I don't look at it as competition. I, I look at it as just showcasing an art form that I truly, truly love. Yeah, and in, in addition to that, Donovan, you're absolutely right. In addition to this, not a competition where bands are rated one through five or whatever. Right. It's just like the old saying, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Right. Which means that I might be sitting next to two people and, we, and three, three people and all three of us are going to have a difference of opinion in terms of what band they really like. You know, so it's, it's, so it's not a competition, it's a showcase, as Donovan said, it's a showcase where every band brings their A game to the, to the dome. And that's, that's always been exciting for me to yeah. see yeah. that these bands bring in what works for them. Now, in terms of dance team, I can, I can say that Florida A&M University is the only HBCU band that doesn't have a dance team. We have, people ask me all the time and say, Sarge, why you don't have any dancing girls in the band? I say, we do, we got 85 of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they're uh, in uniform. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, that's, so that's not a part of our show. And one of the problems that we have, and Donovan has the same problem every year, every year we'll have, we're charged with having to reinvent ourselves to come up with new ideas, new things to do, that will be a pleasing to our audience, you know. And and for us, you know, it's 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 we put the emphasis on the band and not any outside any dance team or anything like that. We do we we do it all within our our two hundred and seventy five people that we have. Wow, Lindsay, the incredible marching one hundred. Your band recently participated in a completely different type of <laughs> spectacle bringing plenty of attention to the great talent on display at Florida A&M. They performed in Paris yes. at 
the recent Louis Vuitton fashion show for the legendary label's 2023 spring and summer men's collection. This had to be an amazing experience for the musicians. Would you tell us what happened on the runway in Paris of the renowned fashion house <laughs> when you all performed? Well, first of all, I wasn't there. You know, I, I didn't make the trip because we, we were so busy during the summer that I let some of the people go on the trip staff-wise who've never been to Paris. I've been to Paris eight or nine times, you know, so it, was not, it wasn't going to be an exciting trip for me. But in talking with Dr. Shelby Chipman, who's director of bands, they had a marvelous time just interacting. And the thing about it, the trip came about all of a sudden. It wasn't it wasn't planned months and months ahead of time. I think they, they contacted us about three weeks in and our challenge was to find 35 or 40 band members who were first of all a, a, available to go. And the second of all, who had a passport. <laughs> ah. so, so that was a challenge, you know, to find 30, 40 band members that had a passport, you know, and, uh, and the people who we really wanted to go couldn't go because they were working during the summer or whatever. And so we had to call one of our state uh, senators, the representative state of Florida, and he arranged to take 12 of our students down to Miami to get their passport overnight. And that was a wonderful thing. That was a wonderful gesture that he made. And, and, but the kids had a lot, lot of fun. It was rehearsal all day long for about three days, just rehearsing, rehearsing, rehearsing. And they got a chance to tour Paris and see some of the, the iconic buildings. It was just a wonderful experience for our kids. Oh, it sounds like it. And it reflects back on the excitement and the popularity of the HBCU marching band. We might just be in a special renaissance in terms of public and media celebration. We mentioned Beyonce featured a marching band in her homecoming performance at Coachella, which became a concert documentary under the same name. The band was described in a recent article as having precision, energy, and limitless swag. Do either of you sense a particularly potent energy right now in HBCU band culture in terms of their contribution to our national sense of identity? Oh, yes, of course. And let me just say that that Conchalo concert, the band that performed with Beyonce was a band from Drumline Live show and it features musicians from almost 15 different colleges and universities so, so it wasn't just like one band it was a, some donovan students some of our students some students who were at mars brown southern university the list goes on and on how hbcus were represented on that performance and i think and that's that's due in part to the energy level that we all bring to whatever we do we just spoke with Donovan Wells, music and band director at Bethune-Cookman University, and Lindsay B. Sargent, chair of the HBCU All-Star Battle of the Bands. 
The battle takes place February 4th at Mercedes-Benz Stadium. And more information is on our website, wabee.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll kick off Black History Month with Chef Asata Reed and Akila McConnell and hear about food that fueled the civil rights movement. Then, a conversation with the director of the Defenders screening at this year's Morehouse Human Rights Film Festival and airing on WABE-TV this coming Monday. Plus, City Light senior producer Kim Drobes brings us the story of a collaboration between Morehouse College and MTV. City Light senior producer is Kim Drobes. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. The world has changed from shifts in power to a mental health crisis. So with all this social change, how do we balance the human desire for empathy, the business need for productivity, and the hope to make an impact in our community? This is a new podcast, The Social Impact Leader. I'm Jeff Schinnebarker. Join me as we explore people doing work a little different. Available every Wednesday at wabe.org forward slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. W-A-B-E. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.